Hey there, Build listeners. Welcome back to the Build Podcast. I'm Blake Bartlett, a partner here at OpenView, and we're here to figure out the new customer journey and what that means for SaaS. Today, we hear from Alex Rosenblatt, longtime VP of Marketing at Datadog. Datadog is the modern monitoring platform for today's sprawling cloud infrastructure, and the company's products are loved by developers everywhere. In today's episode, we talk about how Datadog goes both bottom up with individual developers and top down with technology executives simultaneously. And we unpack how to decide which self-service leads get human attention. And if that's not enough to entice your earbuds, let me remind you that Datadog generates over half a billion dollars of revenue annually and had a massive IPO last year. So in other words, you're gonna love this episode, trust me. Let's dive in with Alex Rosenblatt. All right. Well, Alex, thanks for joining us here today on the Build Podcast. It's great to have you on. Likewise. Good to be on. So we're going to jump into all things product-led growth and self-service and this new customer journey with you. And you guys have certainly pioneered a lot of uh, really great approaches over at Datadog. Uh, before we get into the specifics, I'm, I'm curious just to sort of level set and hear you know, your perspective on what does product-led growth mean to you? Yeah. Product-led growth, I think, is really important because I feel like there's two ways to have a company and and to offer something to the market. One is that you establish what you want to build as a product. And you know if you do a really good job on it, then you have a lot of material to try to reach out to people that you really built this for and try to attract them to the product. The other one is you know kind of some of those famed stories uh, of Bill Gates, for instance, you know, with the vaporware approach of, you know, going out there and just trying to get a contract for something that somebody really wants, and then hoping that you're going to be able to build it. You know, I think some of those stories in, in like Bill Gates's case, he was he knew what his company was capable of, and he knew that he could build out windows and things like that. That's not a usual thing, and and I think that some people have gotten in trouble, and this is something that you know product people always get a little bit annoyed with salespeople on, which is promising things that don't exist and might not necessarily be easy or even possible to build. Now, I think that's a, an important call out. Um, a lot of times I'll describe, you know, the, the difference in product-led growth as being that product leads and sales follows. And, and that's the exact opposite of the way that it used to be, which is sales leads and product follows. And oftentimes that means that sales leads with conversations and promises that uh, product hasn't actually built yet. <laughs> you have to sort of scramble after the fact. And a lot of times you're sort of chasing what sales sold and what sales promised. And that defines the product roadmap. And by sort of orienting it the other way and leading with product, you can actually lead with value and build what you know the market needs rather than what that one contract demanded. Correct. And I think that the problem with going contract by contract is there's no guarantee that you are going to be working on things that that the broad market cares about. It might be just a super niche set of requirements that one customer had. Exactly. And and another thing that that I think about as being sort of fundamental to this idea of product-led growth is is also self-service, right? If you're leading with the product and you're trying to get it in front of people who you built it for, it's got to be easy for them to to use and to adopt and to, to get that value out of. And so self-service has really kind of, in many ways, become more and more popular for, for enterprise software these days. I'm curious to, to get your thoughts on what do you think is driving this sort of wave of self-service you know, in enterprise when that used to not be the case? I think a lot of it is about friction. I mean, even if you have a really big sales team and they're super responsive, someone is busy doing something right now. And if somebody says, hey, I want to look into this 
product or I want more information here. I guess if you have a big enough team of people answering the phone, sure, somebody can talk to you right there, but it might not be the exact person you need to talk to to get your questions answered. And everybody's busy and, you know, you, you want to strike while the iron's hot. Somebody's mind is on this space. They've got this burning question or this, you know, they really want to check things out. They've got time right now. And if it takes a couple of hours or what's usually the case, a couple of days to get back to that request for a demo or whatever it is, the moment's potentially gone. That person's moved on or maybe they already started talking to another vendor that had self-service or was able to get to them just faster. I mean, in fact, in a previous company, one of our biggest competitors, we were basically self-service. I mean, it wasn't like a SaaS thing, but it was, it was the next best thing where in five to 10 minutes with some really clear instructions, you'd be able to install this thing and have it start working for you. And our biggest competitor was a pretty heavy duty product that you had to sign up for uh, like half day implementation with a sales engineer. And I, I was able to work out a, uh, a play with our sales team that if that big competitor was in the mix, I trained the sales team on how to do basic troubleshooting of our installation process and how to walk people through it. And when they were on the phone with someone, they'd walk them through it and they'd be done. And they'd say, okay, why don't you just use this product and I'll check in with you and let's say, huh, three or four days, see how it's working out for you. And then maybe we can compare with how that other competitor product is, you know, working out similarly. And we already knew that three or four days was too small a time frame for them to be able to get somebody to help you install it. It was more like weeks. So there was a lot of times, I believe, that with that other product that we would have already basically gotten a deal almost at the contract phase because the product was already working for them before the installation had happened for the competitor. So, I mean, I, I, I lived that one and was able to tune a sales motion for it. I think that that's, that's super interesting that, that self-service unlocks a couple things there. One, uh, self-service unlocks time and you can have just much faster time to value and use that to your advantage if your competitors don't have that and they have to wait for somebody to be able to actually get on the phone and schedules to align and you know walk through the demo and all that kind of stuff. If you're instantly available, that's sort of a, a bonus point in your column um, and you kind of have a head start out of the gates. The other side of it is, is something you alluded to that I've heard others sort of point to, which is the fact that self-serve is always open. <laughs> it's always open for business. And so if I'm you know, based here in Boston and starting a new software company, you know, it's pretty hard for me to sell to people who are based in Japan and Australia. The time zones are just super inconvenient. But if I have a self-service product, I can be asleep and people over there can sort of adopt it or on the weekends they can adopt it it's no longer constrained by when do I have availability to get on the phone with you. So, you know, really seeing that there's a ton of value that's unlocked and there's a ton of business value that's unlocked for both the customer and the vendor in this idea of self-service. Yeah. You know, I'd go even further having to have a good self-service process for somebody to try something out that works all of a sudden forces you to, I think, improve your overall product design in basically all other parts of the product because it starts to become kind of weird that it's really easy to get started with the product but then all these things in the product are not intuitive or you know no one's really thought about how a real human is going to get these things done and once you go through that flow and you're like wow our self you know our self-service sign up or you know installation process or whatever it is works pretty good people are using it and they're converting I think that's hard for them to be like, all right, now let's just abandon all of our design principles and just, you know, hack some stuff together for the rest of the product. Exactly. I think that's a good jumping off point to, to start talking a little bit about product and the role of product in, in the sort of customer journey today. I'm curious if you can kind of unpack that idea of persona and how it's different in today's era of software. 
it's just really easy to build product these days. I mean, the tools that are available to people just blow my mind. You know, when I was taking programming classes a long time ago, like you had to buy a, a bare metal server. You had to know how to configure the server and, and get the whole, you know, development environment to work before you could even write a line of code. And if you wanted to do something serious, you had to get a bunch of money to buy a couple of servers and some storage to even try to like build a prototype out. And now you can just get on cloud service provider, put your credit card in, and for a relatively small amount of money, you know, the equivalent of, I don't know, your average like Amazon purchase, you can just start building stuff. It's, it's incredible. And in terms of like learning, you know, parts of a product or parts of, uh, of a stack or, you know, parts of a programming language that you don't know about, there's so many resources out there. It's super fast. I think that because it's so easy to build product, in any category that you look into, there's going to be a proliferation of products and just a huge amount of things to pick from. It's whatever you're like, I want a product that does XYZ thing. You do Google search, you're going to have like a hundred hits of different different companies that are doing the exact same thing. So I think that you know a lot of these uh, enterprise companies, when they started, they still started in the world where like if you were going to do a real effort to build a product, like you had to be serious about it. You're going to have to have a lot of resources up front. So they never had that competitive pressure that really wanted to force it. And, you know, they, they also probably didn't have the technology or there weren't enough people that were savvy getting on the internet and trying things out. So it wasn't even a thing that was probably on the radar. But I mean, for self-serve in particular and for persona uh, build out, the reason this becomes important is the traditional enterprise buying process for software is, you know, some high powered salesperson in a suit and a briefcase flies out, wines and dines the CTO, and the CTO makes a decision. And but the thing is that they oftentimes don't get the buy-in from the actual users of the product. And then the product ends up becoming shelfware. Or at worst, you know, there's a revolt and people, you know, use their corporate credit card, maybe at the line manager level and buy the product that they actually wanted to use anyways. And the IT department and the security team might not know that these products are being used. So if you're getting really good at nailing what the persona is that you're trying to build this product for and the things that you are building just really resonate with them, people will love your software. And they, you know, you're going to have to basically pry it out of their cold dead hands if you want to take it away. And you know, of course, CTO or you know, some other leader might make a decision to move away, but if you have the users bought in and loving the software, everything aligns and the value that the software is providing becomes super clear. The usage, the you know, CTO can see everyone's using this thing. You've standardized processes on the platform. And basically, it becomes part of how that part of a company does their work because it's baked into everything. And to be able to reach that, the software has to really address what that persona needs day to day and just become so ingrained that it's just it's what they do a lot of the work in. It's funny. It, it occurs to me that uh, as you were describing that, the word that kept occurring to me is the way overused term of democratization. And people use that term way too liberally, but that's actually in a literal sense what's happening here is that we are democratizing the access to software all the way down to the individual user level and allowing them to find and adopt and sort of vote with their feet or vote with their usage or vote with their login credentials on which products are really the best for the organization and best for that particular context versus, as you mentioned, who, who had the best salesperson and who sort of had the best expense account. And so that not only creates sort of a better purchasing decision up front, because it's from the front lines, 
but it also means that, like you said, over time, you're, you're going to reduce the risk of organ rejection and revolt inside the, you know, the team that, you know, is using that software. Yeah. If you're a company that's trying to build a, a product for the long term, like you're not being built to flip, that lifetime customer value piece starts to become really important too. And you're going to want to not just keep your customers, but you're going to want them to keep on growing your, the footprint of your product in their organization. And again, if you want to have that kind of grassroots growth, where of course you can you know, do things like have a corporate event and try to get people from other departments or other divisions to check out how this particular division that's using the product does their work. You know, you can do that and try to accelerate things. But that word of mouth of a product that's really solving someone's problems, when they see a counterpart in another team, and they're like, oh, you had that problem. Well, I solved it with this tool. The only way to get that kind of organic diffusion of word of mouth is the product's got to really solve that person's problems very well. And, and I'm curious, with this persona development and self-serve, how does that change the way that you need to think about B2B marketing in that older era versus the, the present era? You know, Datadog, of course, we, we sell to the executive buyer level, or at some point, they're going to have to approve the purchase of, of a large contract. But at our roots, we've always tried to go in at the grassroots. We've, we've always been a product that a developer or DevOps person or sysadmin would want to use and would immediately, intuitively know as soon as they sign up what they need to do with this thing. We always have the design principle that it should be like a social media tool. As soon as you open up a Facebook account or a LinkedIn account, you're up and running in like no time at all. And you know exactly what you're going to do with these pieces of, of product. And I think that the important thing is that even though you're going to have to sell the executive buyer level, the sale to the user of the product and getting their enthusiasm and their buy-in. They're going to end up becoming your champions inside of that organization. And they're going to, they're going to connect all the dots and they're going to, you know, force the difficult conversations that might happen when, when you're in some sort of contract negotiation process to keep the deal moving. And I think that it's really important to make sure that you're reaching out to them and that they, they buy in and, and they want to do that because they really want to use what you're producing. If I think about this idea of, you know, inside a customer account, there are far more end users than there are executives. And so that kind of by, by default means that, you know, most self-service companies deal with the top of funnel volume that's much greater than a traditional sort of B2B software business. And so as that happens, and as we sort of atomize things down to the individual user level, things kind of start to look a little bit more like consumer growth models. And so I'm curious from the marketing perspective, you know, are there any new skill sets that need to be added or sort of new disciplines that need to be brought into the team, you know, perhaps from, you know, consumer or other areas um, as we sort of do this new kind of B2B marketing to the individual user? I think that that's a great analogy. I think B2C brands are really good at trying to figure out for the demographic that they're appealing to, what exactly these people want, how they go about their day. You have to do the same thought process with a B2B user. And I think that probably the most important role and trying to get someone that is just, you know, kind of a bullseye hire in a marketing team to be able to nail this is product marketing. You need somebody who has sold to that kind of persona before and really knows them super well, or potentially has been that person before and has decided to go into marketing, you know, from a professional perspective, maybe they want to pivot a bit in their career and they're really interested in getting into more of a business strategic, you know, line of work in tech for developers and for DevOps person. It's a really tough role to, to try to find. You're essentially trying to find an engineer 
who doesn't feel like doing engineering work anymore and really wants to learn how to, you know, how to penetrate a market. And it's a really, really hard role to find. And, you know, there's a lot of people that, that are interested in selling or in, in you know, in, in strategy. And there's a lot of engineers, but there's very few people that have both skill sets and both, you know, sets of interests. And then are also, you know, able to pick up on the pieces of the job for being a marketer. And if I think about the customer journey, which, you know, starts with attracting people to the top of the funnel, which we've been talking about here, and then in product-led growth and self-service, it, it's all about getting them to sign up for the product and activate in the product and start using the product. And so I'm curious to know kind of how you guys think about that part of, you know, sign up and activation and conversion in the customer journey. Is, is that sort of owned by like we see in other businesses, you know, a growth team, or is that owned in marketing or, you know, does it kind of become products role at that point because they're in product? Like, how do you guys manage that next phase of the customer journey? The way that we think about it is basically from the time that somebody is just a potential customer somewhere out in the market to the point where they have started using the product, that all is owned by the marketing team. You know, in terms of growth, I think that we get pretty granular depending on the channel. We have a demand gen team that works on all sorts of digital opportunities. We have an events team that works on all sorts of events. We have a partner marketing team that works on joint opportunities with other tech companies and with other channel partners. So, you know, I don't know that we have like a growth team per se. I guess if you were to weave together the events team, the partner marketing team, the demand gen team, those three as a unit would definitely, you know, you could classify that as a growth team altogether. Again, the reason that that we don't have like a kind of a generic growth team, if you would, is because we want to tailor the experience of a potential customer super granularly. The dynamics of somebody looking something up on the internet, hitting a Google ad are really different from them out at a trade show, checking out the expo hall, for example. So we want to get like really, really tailored to that. Every little bit of it from the moment that the first couple of words in an ad, we're trying to get that hook for whatever it is contextually that that person was looking for. And, and the same thing repeats in every other go-to-market motion that we do. So when you said that marketing owns everything from initial discovery to the point at which they get into the product, if I think about that, is that at sign-up or is that sort of post-sign-up? And then is the handoff to product at that point or, or where does it go from there? Yeah. From once they make their way into the product, the, then the product team becomes responsible for how well is that initial user engaging with the product? You know, Are they going through the flows that we had expected them to go through? Are they able to get some things set up initially that we thought that they were going to? From a marketing perspective, what we're trying to do is we're trying to find people out in the market that have a certain need, appeal to the fact that we can help them with whatever it is that they're looking for, and then make it really fast and easy for them to get to the point where they can start solving that problem. Got it. That makes sense. That raises a question, which is, you know, you end up then collaborating with and are much more adjacent to product than, you know, marketing used to be back in the in the old days, right? Where marketing used to have the handoff, just here's a lead, you know, give it to the salesperson, the salesperson then does their thing. But here, the lead comes to the sign up form, then signs up and then goes straight into the product. And so the handoff is a little bit different. And so I'm curious to know kind of how you end up collaborating with uh, with the product team in that regard? And how do you guys think about the customer journey from, from that side of things? Yeah. So again, that product marketing role, they basically map to the product team. And we actually do have a mapping where every product marketer 
maps to one or more product managers and they have regular check-ins and there's a lot of feedback going back and forth. The other thing that happens is that you know, the product team, it's not unusual if they're considering a whole bunch of projects and they're trying to prioritize which, they, which of these they want to work on first. They will many times get our opinion and say, hey, would you prefer to have X or would you prefer to have Y or Z? And, you know, they want to take from a go-to-market perspective, what's got more sizzle? What do we think is going to allow us to find more people that are searching for a problem that either X, Y, or Z will, will solve? So the more that we're able, the more kinds of problems that we're able to solve, especially problems that are held by a large percentage of the population that we can reach out to, or problems that are just so poignant that like if it happens, you have to solve it quick. You know, we, we have a pretty good feel for that. And again, we are, our opinion is oftentimes brought into context when the product team is figuring out, okay, we're trying to prioritize what we're going to work on. And here's an input into our decision making. And this is all talking about self-service and still, you know, kind of a, a touchless funnel at some point in terms of, you know, the price point getting, you know, high enough. There is a shift from pure self-serve and swiped credit cards to something that looks more like a, a traditional sales assisted journey. And so I, I'm curious, you know, what, what is the role of humans getting involved in a self-service funnel and how does that all play out? I think that it doesn't matter how slick or how well designed a product is, in order to be able to just really shoehorn in a solution, at some point you're gonna and again, the people from the company are gonna are gonna be the ones that know the product the best. So I think that having to ask the question, what are you trying to do and did you completely solve what you're looking for? That's the question that needs to be asked by a human to another human. And then from there on out there might be some meetings or some additional work that is unearthed there that to really, really nail the problem or to really nail the solution, you do need to have some sort of human-to-human -human, uh, interaction. Got it. And who does that human-to-human -human interaction of asking the question, did you solve what you're looking to solve? Is, is that somebody with a sales title? Is that somebody with a success or a support title? Yeah, I think that it's all of those. I think that if it's someone that's completely brand new to the product, it's, it's probably going to be a salesperson. You know, I mean, the support or the solution engineer team, they're usually pretty busy because there's a lot of people that want to see a lot of stuff. So, you know, having it be part of a salesperson's job to figure out what's going, I think a good salesperson should figure out what are you trying to do? Like if someone starts immediately saying, oh, isn't our product so great and pitching you and everything, it's like, well, once again, B2B products do so many things. How do you know that you're even telling them the thing that they care about? So I think that asking a lot of questions and figuring out what should happen should be done by all teams for new customers or for new prospects. It's going to probably be the sales team for an existing customer. Things evolve on the customer side, the product evolves too, and maybe there's a better way to, to do whatever it is that they're trying to do. That's probably more on the customer success side. I think that Usually by the time that somebody that's like a supporter solutions engineer gets brought into the picture, you should have a pretty good idea of what they're trying to do because those people's time is usually pretty scarce. Got it. So in, in the old world, the first job of the salesperson is discovery. And you're doing a lot of those discovery questions and you're exploring and you're kind of building the conversation. But since so much of that discovery and so much of that sort of education and qualification has been done on a self-service basis and by the product itself and through perhaps some you know, outreach of you know, asking questions of what are you here to do and where are the pain points. A lot of that, you know, once you actually get on the very first sales call, has already been established and you can be that much more directly helpful to the person on the other end of the phone. Yeah, absolutely. 
So Alex, that, that brings me to another question, which is, you know, in this high volume self-service top of the funnel, where you have lots of individual in, in Datadog's case, individual developers coming through the funnel, how do you decide which of those folks you reach out to with a salesperson and which of those you leave on a self-service journey kind of more touchless? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll give the marketing answer for this, or at least marketing in a, in a tech company. I think that, that a sales counterpart would probably have a different answer for this. But I mean, optimally, if there was insight into how this person is interacting with the product, if you've set up the self-service sign-up and hopefully some sort of self-service onboarding process, you know, people should be able to, to hopefully, for the most part, figure out what they're trying to do, set everything up, and, and, and get their problems solved. Now, B2B software is usually pretty complicated, and it's because the problems that you're trying to solve in a business are usually pretty complicated, so that means that there's a lot of features and a lot of ways to do things inside of any B2B system. Similar to if you were to go shopping at a store, if somebody were to immediately come up the second that you walk in, even if you just wanted to kind of browse or maybe just look at the pants, and they were just saying, hey, what can I do? How can I help you? What are you trying to find? Sometimes it can be a bit too much, and I personally, sometimes that as said, hey, I was just here to check things out and taking a step back and sometimes, you know, left the store. But going along with that, if you're trying to find something or you get jammed, let's say that you're trying to find pants in a certain size or a shirt in a certain color, then you do want the help. So likewise, if you have the ability to see when a user has maybe was doing a whole lot of uh, clicking around or they're opening up a bunch of dashboards or doing a lot of something and then they just stopped or they got jammed up. If there's a way to see that, which you should be able to see if you have instrumentation inside of the product, it would be good to reach out then when someone is really wanting some assistance potentially and just to find out if everything went okay. And especially for a technical audience, a lot of these people are usually really DIY. If you were to respond to every single person just off the bat, immediately that could probably have a counterintuitive reaction from the person, especially once again, if you set up the product to be self-service and you put a lot of thought into making sure that this is easy for anybody in the space to get up and running, they'd probably be thinking, huh, what value can you give me? I'm still trying this out. I'm still checking this out. I'm still setting this up the way that your product told me to set it up. And it might be a bit difficult to start a conversation that's meaningful then. I like the way that Jay Simons over at Atlassian describes it, which is that the touch needs to be smart. And I think that's for a couple different reasons. You know, that touch or that sales outreach needs to be smart because in a high volume funnel, there's just way too many leads to be able to scalably service on a one-on-one basis. But it also needs to be smart and context aware, like you were describing, because if I just started using the product and maybe I'm actually having no problems, this is frictionless and, 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 and a joyous experience, but then somebody sort of um, starts jumping in and, and, and asking me all these questions and kind of trying to sell me something then it, it, it starts to change the experience. And so wait for somebody to sort of, by looking at the way that they behave in the product, wait for them to, to reach a point of friction where they might be raising their hand or they might want to raise their hand and sort of interject then based on when they might need it rather than based on when you want to interject and sort of drive the transaction. Yeah, I, and I think this goes back to product-led growth or just the idea behind it. The product is more than just the actual product. It's the entire experience. And the people from the company that you interact with, it's similar. How many times has there been like an angry tweet about an airline or, you know, or, you know some other service industry? Well, you know, an airline, it's an airplane, right? It gets you from point A to point B. But when you're actually flying, 
it's not the case at all. If you have like a really rude employee from the airline that doesn't care at all about your, your problems and just, you know, kind of shoes you away, that flight was not the same, even though it's just an airplane that got you from, you know, point A to point B. And that was just a really terrible experience. And you might not fly that airline again as a result. So how do you prevent conflicts between self-service and sales and conflicts in the teams who own different parts of the journey, like marketing and product and, and sales? How do you make sure that this kind of much more collaborative cross-functional journey that we see ourselves, you know, in today with self-service in the enterprise, how do you make sure that it actually works from like a, a team or an organization standpoint? Yeah, I think that if you just set the expectation for each person when when they're going to play their part, I don't think we've ever had any friction or anything like that at Datadog. And, and again, it's because we we were designed from the outset to be extremely frictionless, self-service. You can get yourself up and running. The docs need to be really good. And, and that's how we've always operated. The expectation for our sales team is that like you're going to be talking to people that have already signed up and potentially done a fair amount of work in the product already. By the time you get to them, they might just have a little question, and that's okay. And you know, if you can help with that one question, you still did a lot to, to in the sales process to get this person to become a paying customer of this product. So we've always set the expectation that part of our spiel as a company, part of our our way of handling people that want to check us out, is that a lot of them are going to already be pretty far along the process themselves of trying out the product. I think most people on the sales team, <laughs> that's great. They're like, oh, I've never had it so easy in other companies that weren't self-service that, that some of our salespeople have worked. And they're like, I had a fight and fight and fight and you know, kind of poke and poke and poke to try to get somebody to get to the same level of engagement in the product that a lot of the people that I start talking to are already in organically. And if I think about the sort of later parts of the customer journey, so I've, I've discovered the product, I've gotten signed up on the product, I've activated, gotten value. My question is, in, in this self-serve model, where the order of operations changes around a bit, who owns retention and expansion and, and upsell, and who's responsible for, for that? Well, I mean, the product team definitely has a big part of this. The product has to keep on improving if there is something that, that could work better, and you get that feedback, you have to respond to it, and you hopefully have to promise the people that have noticed it that it's going to be resolved in the next like development cycle. And you have to have that dialogue. But again, that's from the product side. Sometimes there's just a lot of things uh, having to do with ongoing training, trying out different parts of the product that need additional licensing. There, there, there's all sorts of additional conversations that come up. And those kind of logistical conversations, I think that it's best to have a dedicated account management team for that because they can be motivated to keep your customers happy rather than just have to keep on finding ways to, to keep on adding more and more customers. And it changes the, the dynamic and it becomes about the interaction and that happiness rather than, okay, let's get you on the board and you know let's have you swipe your credit card. That makes sense. Now, is there an opportunity in, in a self-service model? I've, I've seen this certainly in some, some instances to use the product as a means to drive you know, cross-promotion of additional products or announcements of new products and and things like that, such that I can, you know, continue on my my self service journey, you know, even after I've adopted the first product. Do you see that happening? Of course, people do it, and and I think there's good ways and maybe maybe neutral ways to do it. But and from the product perspective, there has to be a very concerted effort for that cross sell to really enhance whatever the workflow or the use case is for the person that's using that product originally. And then if, if it's a natural 
progression of like, well, when you do all these things here, the next step is always this. And there's an integration or there's an additional piece of functionality that you can't find in any other product on the market. Then it becomes a delighter. And then usually people are very eager and, and happy to check it out. So it makes sense to use your product as, if I'm thinking about it as a, a communication channel to my users to do cross-sell, cross-promote, I should think about it more as you know one-to-one communication that's context-aware, that looks at you know where are you in your journey? What have you done? How could this be sort of truly the, the right next logical step for you in our product suite and, and in your journey of, of sort of solving problems? versus like, I have this megaphone and I'm just going to broadcast to everybody that you should buy product X because it's the new cool thing that we developed. Yeah. And, and the thing is, the, what I'm describing is pretty intensive and challenging to do. But, and the megaphone's easy. I mean, even, you know, just in general life, you want a megaphone, you go on Amazon, you order one, it gets delivered to you, you turn it on, you just start talking really loud, trying to figure out exactly what someone's doing and this new thing that you've developed, how it fits in, takes quite a bit of thought process and then figuring out how to message someone on it and really show what you can do as a benefit. It's a tough problem, but if you can solve that problem and you can do a good job of it, as as I mentioned before, it becomes a delighter and people say, oh man, this is amazing. Why didn't you have this out years ago? I can't live without this now. Yeah. It brings me back to some of what we were talking about earlier in the conversation, which is, are there new skill sets or there new disciplines that are fundamentally necessary in order to do this new customer journey well. And and what I'm hearing there is since it's all about context and it's all about personalization and it's all about, you know, sort of having this smart touch or this smart outreach versus just the the bullhorn or the megaphone, fundamentally, you can only do that in a self-service environment through data. And so it increases the importance of product analytics and of product operations. So very, very powerful. Yeah, agreed. Well, any parting words of advice for for marketers that are looking to adopt a self-service model or embrace the product-led world? I'd say one thing is, if you're going to do it, do it well. There is no toe dipping. Because if you're going to dip your toe and not really put the time in to do a great job of it, your self-service flow is probably going to have a lot of issues and not work very well. So I'd say that's definitely one thing. Like If you're going to do it, you're going to do it, and it's going to potentially have a lot of downstream impacts that might change the entire development and marketing process for that particular company. And then I'd say that the other one is, if you're a marketer and you're, you're working on, you know, go-to-market assets or a demand gen campaign or whatever it is, if you get to a point where the words are not just flowing out of you, it means that you probably don't know your persona well enough and you should probably stop what you're doing and try to get over to like a webinar or a meetup or some way, like get to know these people, figure out like what magazines they read, what they like to eat, like get down to that level. We have pretty robust training and we definitely ship out people to all sorts of events uh, when they join a data dog so they can actually meet and get to know the people that they're trying to, to, to appeal to. But anytime that someone that, that I see someone's kind of hit a writer's block on some of this stuff, it means that if you knew how much this is going to help the person that you're trying to reach out to, it should just like flow out of you. You should be super excited to talk about it. So every time that something like that comes up, you know, it's, I think that the advice is, okay, stop what you're doing and learn more about the person and what their needs are. And once you know that and you understand how this is going to fit in there, it's going to be a super easy thing to write. Knowledge of the customer never goes away as being the central important part of, uh, of go to market. That resonates with me for sure. Awesome. Well, Alex, this has been incredibly helpful. Thanks for taking the time today to join us here on the Build Podcast. Yeah, it's been great talking about this stuff. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Build. If you liked what you've heard, 
leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe for new episodes that drop each week. Follow me, Blake Bartlett, on LinkedIn for daily product-led growth content, and let me know what you think about the show. Join me this season on Build as we figure out the new customer journey and what comes next in product-led growth. One thing is for sure, all of us in the product-led community are in this together. Take care, everyone, and I'll see you next week here on Build.